This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and I'm very excited about today's guest, filmmaker Desiree Abeta. Desiree is a Telly Award-winning Hispanic creative born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, now living in New York. She's a graduate of the Las Vegas Academy of Performing Arts. She has a bachelor's in theater performance from UNLV's Nevada Conservatory Theater Program. She starred across from Billy Baldwin and Denise Richards in the film Christmas Trade before transitioning from in front of the camera to behind. She's worked in multiple aspects of the production world. Desiree has produced and coordinated for a variety of media, such as promotional content for large brands like Google, Macy's, and Pepsi, music videos and events for notable artists such as Beyonce and Post Malone. She's an editor, a writer, and a director. We're going to talk about her first film, An Invitation to Tea. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Desiree Abeta. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast, Desiree. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's begin with your story. Why don't you start with who you are and what you're all about? Okay. Uh, My name is Desiree, as you said. I am a filmmaker and a creative who lives out in New York City. I'm originally West Coast, so uh, I sort of swim upstream, I guess. (laughs) And um, yeah, I write, I produce, and I direct films. Awesome. Now, I know you have an interest in magical realism. I do as well. When did that begin for you? What draws you to that particular genre? I think it's a multitude of things. I think, you know, culturally, magical realism has a lot of roots in Latin and Hispanic cultures. And my dad's side of the family is Hispanic. So I grew up um, on stories that kind of had magical realism as their core sort of through line. And then it's also just things like fantasy and this idea of telling stories in this magical way where they tend to be very ripe with metaphor that even as a child, you know, you kind of get. So I I grew up on these kinds of stories. And then when I fell into more like filmmaking and wanting to tell stories myself, it just felt like a natural, a natural vehicle for the types of stories that I like to tell. You said that it's big in Hispanic culture, and and that is true, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of Latin authors that uh, play with magical realism, even uh, Luis Jorge Borges, or did I say his name backwards? Um, (laughs) I forgot. Jorge Luis Borges. (laughs) Anyway, why do you think that is? Why, Why is that like such a big genre within Hispanic culture? I always found that interesting. Um, I think it's historically has a lot to do with colonialism and and the culture is kind of getting lost. So when you have these Hispanic and Latin cultures, I would say more Latino cultures, uh, if I was to be accurate, where you have other cultures coming in and conquering them, they lose a lot of their 
history. They lose a lot of where their origin comes from. And when you have cultures that go through a lot of trauma, um, you know, historically and or otherwise, they resort to this type of storytelling Hmm. um, because they don't always know where their roots are. You know, they don't always know where they come from. And when they're dealing with a lot of like I said, trauma or these these situations where it's easier to kind of escape. It's it's rooted really, I think, in escapism hmm. and how you deal with trauma or how you deal with hardship and and dealing with those types of things. Um, magical realism comes from that. So it's this way to deal with trauma and hardship, I think, uh, is the root of where that comes. Where it has expanded to, I think, is a little bit broader. And I think that it allows for just really creative storytelling and metaphor and using um, these sort of fantastical uh, situations to deal with trauma or deal with hardship or or even just kind of relay certain types of content to a more palatable audience in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think people don't like to deal with hardship. Um, and then when they do it in these sort of fantastical premises, then they don't even realize that that's what's happening. And it, it makes it a little bit more palatable. Gotcha. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term magical realism, how would you describe it? Maybe, what are some movies out there maybe that people would have heard of and be familiar with, but didn't really know it was considered magical realism? Sure. So, I mean, one of my favorite examples, favorite examples is Pan's Labyrinth by mm. Guillermo del Toro, you know, about the Spanish Inquisition and and what this child goes through is is kind of escapism. But at the same time, you don't know if it's real or not. And I think that's what magical realism does really well. It's the real part of the magical. So if you're watching, you know, super fantasy or fairy tales or things that are a little bit more fantastical in that way, you buy in to that world, but you kind of know in the back of your mind that it's it's another world or it's it's otherworldly. Whereas magical realism is rooted in reality. And then there's always some sort of magical or fantastical component. Like Neil Gaiman is really, really big on this and really good at that. So if you watch like Coraline, um, you might think that it's a children's story, but it's really not when you think about it. And it's part of the thing that I like about it. And I don't know that films explore it as much. And it's what I tried to explore with my film. Um, an invitation to tea. I think magical realism a lot of times gets lumped in with children and children's fantasy or children's storytelling. And so it's kind of easy to sort of pass it off as fantasy. Mm-hmm. But a lot of literature and and filmmakers who who use magical realism with adults, um, I think it drives it home a little bit more. So there is this element of adults using escapism and fantastical premises to go through hardship. And I think that aligns a lot more with what magical realism is at its core. Interesting. Yeah. And it does have the word realism in there. And I think that you said it, it sort of blurs the line between magic and reality where maybe fantasy is just straight up make-believe, you know, you're in this other world where magical realism kind of keeps you on your toes, like what's real, what's not real. Right. And, and toying with the idea of, of these sort of magical circumstances that happen and are born out of real life situations. So the, the, the spectrum can be quite broad. You know, you can have really heavy magical sort of fantasy elements, or it could be something really slight and simple and just sort of out of the ordinary comes this 
this slightly magical component. And I think those are the ones that I really like where it kind of catches you off guard and you're like, oh, wait, right. um, without, without automatically putting this slant that the person's crazy or that it's happening because they're, you know, questioning their insanity or, or questioning their sanity rather. Um, I don't know that it always needs to kind of have that, that tone. Right. It, it reminds me too of uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, where he just wakes up one day and he's this big bug. There's no explanation of how it happened. Yeah. It just is. <laughs> and everybody just has to accept it in the story and uh, and deal with it. And that's uh, I think that's the difference between magical realism. There's no magic door or anything. It's just something fantastical happens out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. you just have to deal with it as part of the the story. So it's interesting. It's also very interesting that I've never heard it described as a way of dealing with trauma. So we're going to get into that with uh, your movie in a second. But first, I, I want to know uh, who are some of your biggest influences in the genre in terms of filmmakers, maybe authors? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned two of them already. I think Guillermo del Toro, he's he's mostly known for being like, like a, like a monster movie type person or maybe people know more from like Hellboy or something. But mm -hmm. if you look at his earlier work, um, Pan's Labyrinth being the biggest of those, I think he's he he is magical realism to me on on screen. And he does do it more from like a children's perspective. I think that's very common, but I just think that his blending of worlds, he does do it with Shape of Water, which I know is kind of a polarizing film and some people love it and some people hate it. I loved it. But I think it's, you know, because there is this this magical element that never gets explained and right. is a little weird. And you're like, what is this? You know, it's Romeo and Juliet with a fish. But right. there's that that is, you know, how do we know that this is a half man, half fit, you know, and, and what does that really represent? You can use that analogy for so many things um, that are real life situations where think of the era that it takes place and imagine that half man, half fish being a person of color and having a, a white woman fall in love with, with them and having that not be okay. And, and all the things that kind of happen, you know, it's used to seem so absurd, but then you put, you know, you, you use it as a metaphor for any, a number of things and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem so absurd. And yet people would react the exact same way. Right. Um, and that's again, what I love about the genre. Uh, so Guillermo del Toro is a big one for me. I do love Neil Gaiman, um, both as an author and as you know, how his works translate to screen. Mm -hmm. I think they're really exciting. And he's one of the ones that have so many, I mean, I can't even count how many have translated at this point. Yeah. I, I think that then, then the genre kind of expands beyond that. So you can, if you wanted to say that Tim Burton is a little bit of magical mm -hmm. when you get into the, like, you know, Beetlejuice, maybe more of his older stuff, but this idea of bridging the world between the ghost world or the afterlife mm -hmm. and the current, you know, and, and what that is. And, and that's all just a big allegory for grief and death. And, and what do you do, you know? So, yeah, I would say those are the ones that come to mind just off the top of my head. Right. I know. I even think of maybe bridge to Terabithia, which comes on TV every so often. My family watches that one and that one too. Again, it's dealing with like trauma and even the, the backstory of that is the author's, son lost like his best friend mm. and she wrote the story for him and uh again a lot of fantastical elements to it have you ever seen that one i haven't no yeah that one's very so that one deals with the you know it's like their imaginary world but they kind of get like lost in it and right. so it's got a lot of elements big fish 
I big think, fish yeah. is a big one. Yeah. I love big fish. And even big fish is one that I pulled from for tea. Um, just because you have a character who sort of lives his life in this sort of fantastical way with these larger than life characters that you never really know. Are they just his, you know, are they his fantasy? Are they the way that he sees the world? Did he create them? Did he make them up? Or mm. are they real? And then you have to kind of go through and make that decision for yourself. But, you know, through the eyes of the son, who's a little bit more of a pessimist and who doesn't right. buy in and actually finds it quite annoying. Um, I think Big Fish is a beautiful movie for that reason, because it just kind of goes to show how much of your reality is what how you perceive it. And the stories that you tell and that you leave behind, you know, how do we write, how do we write history? It's, it's through the stories that we tell. So as far as I think Albert Finney is the, is the dad character in that film. Um, as far as how he leaves his legacy, it's all based on the stories that he tells. Right. And I think that's, that's part of storytelling. Absolutely. Let's talk about your short film, An Invitation to Tea, for those who Let's haven't seen it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Why don't you give us a brief synopsis before we get into it? Sure. So it is um, uh, a film about grief and loss, I would say. Um, it is following um, a millennial who was raised on the stories of her grandfather. So her grandfather was a children's storybook author. Um, and he had a series of successful books when she was a child that she grew up on and loved. And now she is, you know, in her early thirties and she is not very successful. She's going through a divorce. Her grandfather passes away from cancer. And so now she has to go back to the house uh, that is being foreclosed on and confront how she truly feels about being raised on these fantastical stories that made her believe the world was going to be a certain way and she kind of feels lied to now that maybe she has to confront that literally <laughs> right yeah that's what i was fascinated with by the movie just this juxtaposition of adult reality and sort of childhood innocence and i i saw even the confrontation with her and the fantastical uh character towards the end and she's sort of uh even when she says you know you know fuck your tea and the tea disappears you know yeah. and, and you know but i like yeah. that element you know so it's kind of just like this confrontation of what she thought was possible and now she's like dealing with the hardships of of adult reality and it's it's interesting very very uh very well done thank so, you kudos to you on that <laughs> thank you <laughs> You did make a couple of statements that I, I read about your own film. You said, do the stories we are told as children contradict the real world we live in as adults, or does the world we live in as adults simply no longer apply the lessons, stories we are told as children? So I'd right. like you to elaborate on that. What, do you, what did you mean by that? Well, I think, I think there's this thing that happens naturally as we grow up where you see children and it's common, you know, we see this in stories all the time. It's, it's children with these wild imaginations who don't need a lot of convincing. They just, they see it, they imagine it, it's real and they don't question it and they don't worry about it. And then you grow up and you lose that and you lose it. I think because as children, it's a lot easier to imagine the world in our ideal or it's our best 
you know, um, hope. Mm-hmm. And then as you start to experience life, it becomes harder and harder to imagine a world outside of the one you're living. And a lot of people, myself included, were raised with the very optimistic and sort of just that you could you could be whatever you wanted to be in life. You know, the world was your oyster. All all you have to do is want it bad enough and be a good person and and nothing but roses and daisies, right? And then you start to realize that that's not always true. And at what point do you feel like Disney and the stories that you were raised on were lies and Mm -hmm. maybe set you up actually for failure because you were taught to believe in what's possible while the world is constantly just telling you what's not possible. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a lot of perseverance and choice to be someone who continues to see the world through the lens of what's possible. So I was really fascinated with this idea of an adult going through these changes and having to return back to childhood stories to find that and to be reminded of that. Because I think that, like I had mentioned before, a lot of these themes are explored a lot, but they're always explored through children and through growing pains and what it is to be a child and to lose that innocence at 10, 11, 12 versus being an adult in your thirties and still experiencing loss. It's like, who says that you stop growing and stop you know, needing these reminders just because you're going through your first hardship as a, as a child. And I wanted to do a film that was about that without having it be about whether or not this character thought they were crazy or didn't believe, you know, oh, I was a child. And so of course she existed as a child, but now I'm an adult and you being there for me as an adult. Oh, I must be crazy. You know, I, I really didn't want to do a film about that. I wanted to do a film about an adult having very strong feelings and opinions about their childhood and addressing it front on instead Mm -hmm. of it being something that kind of, you know, surprised them. And they had to all of a sudden believe, you know, be reminded of it and go, Oh gosh, you know, was this real? Um, So that was kind of the core of it and why I thought that this was a really great way, a really fun way to explore that. And I thought it ended on a, on a hopeful note, too, you know, where even the characters saying, you know, like you still have the magic. And even at the last shot of her in the room, when she's mm-hmm. clearing out it, she's holding the box of the belongings and the word keep is mm-hmm. like just right there. And I, I thought that was really symbolic too. like there are some things you do need to keep from your childhood and not just total, totally rejected because it doesn't measure up, you know, so I, I thought that was uh like a hopeful tone. And that's how I interpreted it, you know? No, that's right. I, I mean, I don't know you know, what's right and wrong, right? But I, I do, I did want to leave with a hope. I, I didn't want to necessarily show her taking the books and putting them in the box and confirming that she was for sure taking them with her. I wanted you to hope that she was taking them with her because I think it's important. It's, it's when people lose hope or tether, that tether, that thing that keeps them connected to why they're here and why they should keep trying. It's like, you can, you know, we all know it. It happens within us. It happens within people around us. You can see when people's shine starts to dimmer and Mm -hmm. that thing that drives them or that thing that makes them feel like they have purpose starts to kind of dim or, or to, to go down. And, and, and that just makes me so sad. Like that is just an element of life that I think is unavoidable, but it makes me really sad. So if this film can inspire in some way to 
to remind you that there are no stories just for children. And yes, we we write them or cla- we categorize them as children's stories. So that way children will read them and hopefully it will help shape them and shape their minds and create, you know, people who will continue to bring good into the world. But we know that it's easy to have that beaten out of you based on your circumstance mm-hmm. and based on what's happening in your own life. And a lot of it is stuff that we can't control. So I wanted to do a film that, you know, didn't, wasn't all fluffy and, and, and feel good uh, necessarily, but still had that little bit that said, you know, connect to it, find it again, because right. if you want to be the change that the world is or whatever that quote is, then, then it's up to you and, and you can't lose you can't lose the hope. We have to find it. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. A good short film always impresses me. It's sort of like a short story, which is what I primarily write. What does it take to make an effective short film? Because you have such a small time frame to tell your story. Yeah, I think I think short films are highly underrated. I know that a lot of filmmakers turn to shorts as you know a means to a feature because really what they want to do is that feature film and they only have so much time and they only have so much of a budget. So they'll just make the short film version. Mm. And there is definitely purpose for that and and reason for that but i find that a lot of those fall short because it feels like a fe- it feels like a feature that got crammed in and and it and it doesn't necessarily sit um in in that perfect place that i think a short that is written to be a short can do and i think it just boils down to focusing on a moment what is that moment that this whole thing is centered around whether it's a theme or you know a moment in time that says what you want to say and leaves the impression that you want to leave and and maybe even asks people you know to think beyond and and to take it with them or do they want to see more because it could be a feature without making it feel like it should be a feature um and so my personal opinion on it is to write shorts that are meant to be shorts and make sure that they still have like you know a beginning a middle and end mm-hmm. they aren't necessarily a whole encompassing thing you're focusing on a moment you're focusing on a moment in time that is important because right and i you know i'm big on structure so whenever i watch movies i'm trying to figure out like oh this is when they did this so even when i'm watching your short like when the who who was it like a a debt person or a a real estate person they were in the beginning like the character Mm -hmm. yeah there's a real estate agent who's tasked really? with selling foreclosing on the house basically right and she gives her the book and i'm like oh that's sort of like the inciting incident or perhaps mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. bookmark thing or the invitation thing that comes out and that's like a minute and a half whereas a full feature film maybe like it's 20 to 30 minutes in before something happens yeah. that propels the person into the story so so you got to do it real quick <laughs> for sure you gotta you gotta just let people know what they're what they're signing up for and and what they're watching and yeah, I would say within the first minute to a minute and a half, if people aren't 
engaged and understand what they're watching, then you've already lost them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, it was really important to me to make this less than 15 minutes. Like I come in right under <laughs> mm-hmm. and not just because that's like the golden time that everybody says for like festivals or whatnot. It's just because anything longer than that. And I would start to feel like this, this is a bigger project. Like this is meant to be something bigger. And, and I, I wanted to task myself with making a short that felt like you got everything that you needed out of it mm-hmm. while still hoping that it intrigued you to want more and hoping that people would be like, Ooh, I would watch a feature of this for sure without right. feeling like it needed to be, but just feeling like, Oh no, I got, I got everything that I needed to get to feel what I needed to feel and walk away feeling like it was earned, you know? It moves quick, but you still get the point of each scene, you know, like you get her frustration in the car, you know, with her scream, you get her frustration with the agent, you know, in the house. And then there's yeah. the invitation. So everything is moving like very quick, but it's uh, it's communicating clearly. So that's what I'm always impressed by, like a good short film that that you're able to even tell the story, you know, in that amount of time. So another mm-hmm. thing that fascinates me about filmmaking in general is just the collaborative nature of it you know as a writer i know it's a general you know generally pretty solitary but Mm -hmm. once you translate a story into film a lot more people have to get involved tell me about that process for you how loose do you have to be with your artistic vision you know between cameramen actors you know how much changes during the uh making of the film well i got really lucky on this one and i would say because this was sort of my directorial debut this was the first film that i had helmed as a director i would say and I have other experience in production that really helped me with that. So I started out as an actor. I you know, went to school for musical theater and theater, moved out to LA, fell into production, um, actually fell into more like producing and uh, what I do now a lot of, which is production management, line producing uh, for like branded content, commercials, music videos. And then slowly started to kind of realize that there's this creative side of my brain and then there's this logistical side of my brain and they both needed to get scratched and directing is kind of the thing where the the two lanes joined. And I had been wanting to do this story for a long time. And uh, one of my creative partners who actually uh, co-wrote on this with me and she was kind of my, my, just like you said, you know, it's writing is a very solitary thing and you need people to read your work and give you feedback. And she's an excellent writer by the name of Angelique Gray. And so I tossed things to her and she would give me feedback. And that was the, that was the first part of, um, we'd collaborated on other things before, but this was the first time we'd collaborated on something where it was kind of, I was solely behind the driving, the driving wheel of, of what this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so that was where the collaboration starts. And I think that you really have to trust the people that you are sharing your ideas with and, and know that they have, you know, your best interest at heart with it. And she always does. She has my back on everything that I do. And then you bring in, you know, your team, you bring in the, the DP. So the DP on this film is Austin Smoke. I've worked with her on several projects, um, you know, in various forms. I was really excited because we had a lot of strong women and people of color on this project. So it was very diverse, all women in the lead um, key Mm. positions. And that was a lot of fun. You know, I had two other producers on the project with me who just really backed me. And I think what I'm getting at with all of this is that you have to know that the people who you're bringing onto this believe in your vision and believe in you. Because once you feel like you have that support, 
it frees you up to take chances and to be confident, even if you're going to crash and burn. Like this was, like I said, this is my first time directing. I had two amazing actors come on board um, that really helped too, because you can just kind of trust them to fly with it and to just create that magic on the screen for you. And, and some of the best advice that I got was if you show up to direct and you've done your homework, it should feel easy because everything just starts unfolding for you in front of the camera and you just kind of get to sit back and watch it. And then of course you go in and you, you know, you're giving people, okay, this is the next shot we're going to do. And you know, you have a very strong vision as to what all that is, but once you've set all that up, it's so amazing to just sit back and watch it kind of take shape. And that was the most fun. And you can only really do that if you have a collaborative team that you trust and who trusts you. And we really had that on this project. So I feel very, very fortunate. I don't feel like you can be super precious with things. I think you Mm -hmm. have to let it breathe and let it be what it's going to be and roll with the punches. But for this film, it, you know, it, it really just came together and I think it's because of the people that I was clapping with. I was really lucky. And was the finished product different than how you imagined it? I would imagine it just has to be a little different just because, you know, before when you're writing, maybe you don't even have the actors in your head. So there's no right. possible way to know how they're going to say the lines or, or whatever. So did it come out like different when you finally watched it? Yes and no. I think Mm -hmm. as a general rule, I would say that's always the case. And the one thing that I would uh, say is was the case was casting. So when I originally wrote the part of Laura, I imagined myself in the role. I was like, well, I'm going to write something for me as an actor because I haven't acted in anything in so long. I'm always behind the camera. Wasn't even going to direct it. Was writing this to hire on another director and I was going to star in it, right? And then as the vision and the work became more and more solidified in my head, it became harder and harder to imagine passing it off to someone else. Because mm. just to your point, that collaborative aspect of things, you would have to let that person's creativity and that person's vision in. And I couldn't be in front of the camera and do a good job while questioning and worrying about the person who's behind the camera running everything. So I just kind of had to have this heart to heart with myself and say, I think this is your story to tell. This is your story to, to kind of craft and mold and, and you need to be the voice of the story. And maybe you need to find another actor to be the face of this story. And that was kind of a, a, I wouldn't say hard, but I had this kind of like, okay, well, What does that mean then? Am I going to go out and try to cast someone who looks like me and who acts like me so that I can, you know, and as you can probably tell, um, Jamie Page, who's a phenomenal actress, looks nothing like me and just took this character in an entirely different direction, but it was the right direction. It just, it made Laura so much more of a whole person than how even I was imagining her in some ways. And I think that's just that goes to crediting like how important casting is and how important being open to what an actor uniquely brings to the role because she just knocked it out of the park. And it was like, oh, now I can't, I can't imagine this character being played by anyone else or in any other way. Um, And she's nothing like me. (laughs) So in that way, for sure, it took a total turn. But, you know, I think a lot of first time filmmakers, when they, they have these really lofty, ambitious 
ideas. And I would say that T because of all the special effects and, and what it's about is a pretty ambitious film. There is a big chance that you're going to have to go, Oh gosh, I'm going to have to really just make some changes and go with the film that I was able to shoot versus the film that I wrote. Um, and if you had more money and more time, then, you know, maybe we could have gotten X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But I think because of my my background with production, I was able to find that middle ground that said, okay, this is what I can write and this is what I can shoot. And they're both ambitious, but I know that I can do it within this amount of time and with this amount of resources. And so I'm, I, I for the most part, got the film that I set out to get. And that's why I'm so proud of it, I think, because I can look at it and I don't sit there and go, oh, gosh, I wish that I had more money. We would have blown those VFX out of the park. And sure, maybe we could have, you know, but I don't know. I kept it simple and and just magical enough to try to get the world across. How long did it take you? I would say, you know, I started writing it early 2019, toying with it. I think within six weeks, I had a, a, a draft that I was like, OK, this is. This is along the lines of what I'm going for. And I started submitting it uh, to grants and some festivals. I was awarded a, a really lovely grant from the Inwood Artworks Film Foundation. And so I got a little bit of seed money. I was like, okay, that's good. You know, and it's, again, it's that confidence that says, ooh, someone believes in this. So I'm going to just go out and make it. And I think from the time that I got that grant to the time that it was like shot and in the hole, I would say it was like three weeks. It moved uh-huh. really fast. Yeah. Post, of course, takes longer. <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, because there are VFX and we are self-funding. And so you kind of got to piece it together, call in those favors and and do what you can. So I would say six months from start to completely finish is about how long it took me to do this short. But when it comes to the actual filming, from casting to locations, to the practical makeup, to wrap, I would say three weeks. It went, it moved quite wow. quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's cool though. Now I have to ask, what is your favorite movie of all time? Doesn't have to be magical realism, just your favorite movie. If you can name, if you oh, can name gosh. one, you can name a few. I have quite a few. I know it seems, um, and they all kind of s- scratch a different itch. I would say if you want to stay in that sort of, magical realism realm outside of the big fishes and the pan's labyrinths, which are definitely more, again, I use this word a lot, but fantastical magical, um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind Mm, is a big one for me. Um, that one just blew my mind when I first saw it. And I think I hold a lot of my own storytelling, like, like, yeah, like that would be the dream, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to find something that's that intricate and yet still relatable. I love a league of their own, <laughs> which is totally the a different one, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I grew up. I mean, my dad played pro baseball. So um, oh, yeah. yeah, to see a, a film about female baseball players uh, that took place in like the forties or thirties and forties, that was, that was a big one for me. And it was a comedy and it was female driven. And I, you know, huge, huge fan of that one. And then, you know, I, I'm a wizard of Oz fan. <laughs> But that's like going back to like childhood. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. So Wizard of Oz was a big one for me growing up. I was Dorothy for Halloween probably (laughs) three, four times in a row. Um, I, my first production company was named Triple Click Productions after the heels. 
you know, there's no place like home. Um, so yeah, I would say that might, that might be a decent enough array to get. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm not surprised about the wizard of Oz. I mean, that has kind of similar themes, you know, the wizard is a fraud at the end, you know, and they have to confront that and, and kind of like deal with, with the fact that he's not really who they thought he was and this and that. So it's it's very interesting that that's uh, one of your favorite films. (laughs) Yeah. I never even thought of that, but you're totally, totally, and this adventure, this idea that you, this adventure that you have to go on to find yourself or to come, to come back to where you started. I mean, that's, that's another thing too, is, is how much of who you are is rooted in where you come from and how much of who you are is rooted in, in the experiences that you have as you grow. And I think for everyone, it's a combination of both, but I think it's fascinating how more often than not, we return to where we started for those, those things to reconnect us and ground us. You know, if you're fortunate enough to come from a place that, that would offer those things positively. And then again, you go back to the roots of magical realism and, and what do you do when you don't have those, those things and and then what what do you create for yourself to find those things yeah i think mm-hmm. like it's probably not a shock at all that i love it yeah. <laughs> i don't watch it on repeat anymore or anything but when i was a kid <laughs> for sure now what piece of advice or nugget of wisdom can you give to anyone looking and dreaming to get into filmmaking which i'm sure is a lot of young people right now what would you say to them I would say a couple of things. I would say get in however you can, you know, um, start wherever, whether it's PAing or working in a production office or just helping out on a set, you know, for friends, because that's generally how you find your people and you're going to find the people that are going to help you because as you mentioned, film is very collaborative and I don't, I don't buy into or align with, you know, the people who have made it who are like, I mean, there's a reason that the Oscars, everyone thinks 50 million people, anyone who gets up there and is like, I made it and this is me. And, you know, I have no one to thank but me because no one believed in me but me. If that were true, then you would never have gotten your film made. (laughs) So unless you're just independently, insanely wealthy, you know, you're not going to get anything made in this industry unless you find the people who are going to help you. And so I would say get in however you can and then know know what kind of stories you want to tell. I mean, it might take a while. And I I don't like the idea that you have to be in a box to be an artist. I don't think any artist likes that or feels that way. I don't think that I'm only ever going to make films that have a magical component in them. But I do think you need to know what inspires you. So just know what that is and then hold true to that. And don't be afraid to try because not everything that you make is going to be great. But the point Mm -hmm. is to just keep doing, you know, it's just like writing, right? You if you if you want the draft, if you want it to be perfect, the minute that it comes out onto the page, you're never going to get a single word out onto the page. You just have to give yourself permission to to to, to not be good for a while until you're good. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great advice, Desiree. Thank you for sharing your story. If people wanted to follow you online, where can they go about doing that? So I do have a website. Um, so it is www.desireabeta.com. Um, and then my Instagram, because surprise, surprise, I'm more of a visual person. So I wish I was witty and that Twitter was my bag, but uh, <laughs> I'm an Instagram girl. So you can find me on at go for Desiree uh, on Instagram. And I kind of have a hodgepodge of stuff on there. You'll get some personal stuff, some professional stuff. 
lots of lots of stuff about pugs if you like pugs <laughs> but definitely stuff about my films and what i'm doing creatively goes on there as well awesome well i'll make sure those links are in the show notes so thank you for coming on the story king podcast thank you so much john carlo it was a lot of fun thank you So that was my conversation with Desiree Abeta. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.